0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Based on shocking true events, the new Hulu original series Under the Bridge tells the story of a savage murder in a small town. Starring Riley Keo and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays only on Hulu. Just a heads up, y'all. The following episode contains explicit language. So, you know, it's going to be a little cussing. You are listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby.
1: And I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji.
0: Shireen, I know you love yourself a rom-com.
1: Gene, who doesn't love people who never, ever, ever should be together in a million years, falling in love? We're talking chance encounters between total opposites with undeniable chemistry, struggling against all odds to win at the game of love. Rom-coms are the best.
0: Well, just for you, we're going to start this episode with a couple that has undeniable chemistry. Meet Cara and Eric
2: Johnston. We met so randomly in Ohio. I am on, like, breakup tour.
3: Spring of, what's that, 06? Oh,
2: yes. Yes. I was, like, devastated. And so friends were like, come visit us. And so I tracked from D.C. all the way to Bowling Green, just outside of Toledo. The first time we laid eyes on each other, Mm. we were going into a party at the student center at this university.
3: It was thrown by the Alpha. Shout out to the brother. When I first saw Kara, I noticed she had uh, natural hair, which I really loved. And just this perfect smile with these really inviting eyes. And I hold the door open for her. I was probably wearing heels and I was like, you're just a little boy. She acts like she wasn't trying to tell me to holla at her but she's looking at me like holla you should holla at me and i'm like you know what i might just do that
2: you know he introduces himself
3: hey funny seeing you here
2: and i'm like let me stop you right there before you even like i don't go here i don't live here i'm not in college
3: long story short the way that i met her started me trying to convince her that you know i was worthy so at that point, I was trying to combat all the reasons for her not to date me. You know,
2: because he's like, you know, ready I'm not for from it. here neither. Exactly. I don't even know nothing about this place. <laughs> We're in the same boat. He was charming. He has dimples and a very nice smile. It wasn't like terribly hard to convince. <laughs> <laughs> we work it in there. Right. I should have known that he was eventually going to be a lobbyist because he just lobbied me right onto his side.
1: She couldn't keep me away, sis. Oh, they're cute. This is perfect rom com. She's nursing a broken heart. She should not actually be dating anyone at all right now.
0: Here comes this dimpled, pretty teeth dude mm. who's the alpha who spits all this game at her. And they became like the attractive straight black couple you see in a commercial for a luxury SUV or something like that. And now they have a whole ass family.
2: We have Ella, Eric the Fourth. I'm Eric the Third. He's Eric the Fourth. And um then our little one is Evan.
1: Huh. Well, is that the end of the story? It can't be because this is a rom-com and that's too perfect. And this is a code switch episode. So (laughs) that means there must be something more to this love story. Yeah. About that.
0: Kara and Eric have some, let's say, points of contention. So remember when Kara said that Eric was a lobbyist? Mm-hmm. Kind of out of nowhere. (laughs) It's relevant here because Eric is a Democratic lobbyist and uh, Kara
2: is not a Democrat. I don't believe that the government will fix social problems. It's not going to happen. I certainly don't believe that the government, if they're going to attack social problems, like out of nowhere, it's not going to be black people's social problems.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about moving in together. We're talking about getting married. You know, the kids are already here. All that is like fantastic, right? And I'm realizing, oh, like, she really believes this, right? (laughs) Like, like like this, like, I'm just like,
2: okay. I fundamentally want my money to stay in my pockets with my family and my children. I I care about other people, but I would like to be able to care about them on my own, as opposed to the government deciding what I care about and doling my money out that way. And and also ineffectively. That was my stance. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So Eric knew that Cara was conservative, but as time went on in their relationship and they got closer and more serious, she started to openly identify as a Republican. When she Mm -hmm. said that she was a Republican, Mm -hmm. what did you think? Don't tell my friends. (laughs) Period.
1: (laughs) All right. So he's a Democratic lobbyist. She's a Republican. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: If I wasn't at work... Right now, I'd be taking bets on whether they were getting a divorce, but that feels very unprofessional, but seriously.
0: And just a quick biographical note. Eric is from Brownsville, Brooklyn. Those of y'all who know Brownsville know Brownsville. Eric grew up in the projects. There were times when we would have, you know, like
2: really difficult and heated discussions. Like a really good one by good. I mean, like we didn't, we were really genuinely mad at each other. We had a public housing debate, and he is like... From Brownsville. (laughs) Exactly. Right. (laughs) Public (laughs) housing capital of the United States. Right. And we still, I think, have this issue where we feel like solutions are, the way that we get to things are still different.
0: And because Eric's job is so public facing, you know, Shereen, people like to comment on their inter-party marriage.
2: Oh, I'm sure. Oh, Definitely he has explained that he has told people that he is married to a Republican and, like, it'll be white people and they'll be like, is she she black? Like, it's like a whisper. Like, is she she white? Is she? (laughs) And then they
3: meet her and they're like, oh. Yeah. Got
0: it. So, yeah, they're working through this. And sometimes Eric will troll her a little bit. Like, they'll be out at some function. And she might say something a little, like, spicy or controversial in mixed company. And Eric will be like... I mean, she is a Republican. And then everybody would laugh like, ha, ah, ha, 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 And then he'd be like, not nah, for real. She's a Republican. Carr is not only the lone Republican in her marriage, she's also the only Republican in her family. She grew up in Cleveland, which is a heavily Democratic city. She said her mom worked in the city's administration for a long time. Her pops was a union guy who worked in a mill. He doesn't even know that she's a Republican.
2: We've talked about it in my family. My family has talked to me about it quite a bit. Everyone but him. Yes. I have not had a conversation with my father ever. As soon as this drops. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when your father hears this, he's going to have questions, I imagine.
2: Oh. Uh, like, he cannot stand. Like, he thinks that Ronald Reagan is probably, like, I mean, there's, like, Lucifer and then there's, like, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Hmm. Uh yeah. <laughs> their marriage is full of a
0: lot of ongoing negotiations
1: and you know we're always negotiating things in a marriage yep. hopefully mm-hmm. if we're being honest uh but i do have to know something something that's been on my mind actually since the beginning of this did Kara vote for president obama
0: good question i asked her about that she said she did vote for obama in 2008 because she thought he was a moderate. Um, She voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 because she said that Obama had veered too far to the left for her liking. Hmm. In some ways, you might mistake her for a Democrat. She supports broad access to abortion. She says she supports LGBTQ rights. But when it comes to things like taxes and government spending and education, Cara says elected officials should just fall back. For example, she says public schools have failed black folks So why should we be so beholden to them?
2: I don't love the way charter schools are structured. I don't think anybody is excited about the fact that they're pulling from schools before the government has an opportunity to make them better. But how long has the government had to make them better and not done so?
0: She also says, like, look, one of the most obvious examples of government interference in people's lives is all of that unnecessary contact that black folks have with the police.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. She says you can fix that with less government. To Carr, it's like the American government has always played a big part in racism in America. So why do we trust the government to fix racism in America?
1: It sounds to me like Carr is arriving at a lot of conventionally conservative principles and ideas, but in in quote unquote unconventional way, you know, mm-hmm. a, a very different way than white conservatives. Yep would come to their conservatism. It feels like hers is a black conservatism versus a white conservatism.
0: Right. That's the way it sounds to me, too. Like, And obviously, there are lots of black conservatives out there. And like you just said, black conservatives often have different priorities than white conservatives do so you can be a black conservative and still vote for democrats in fact most black conservatives still vote for democrats uh-huh. but registered republicans they have to hide you two are democrats aren't you What? <laughs> of course we are I mean, you see the color of our skin don't you how could we not blindly vote democratic i mean that would be ridiculous
3: whatever
1: i have been waiting for this sketch to show up that's Key and Peele, and it's their black Republican sketch, which is pretty funny. And I'm wondering, Gene, are you wearing the outfit Why would to I get into character outfit? for this?
0: Uh, just to, to empathize with our black Republican brethren and sistren. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, because um, the outfit looks crazy. It's dad jeans, it's a leather jacket, I can't do it. Um, as that Key and Peel sketch illustrates, black Republicans, like Cara, might just be the biggest outlier in mainstream party politics.
1: I mean, is that surprising? How big of an outlier are we talking about?
0: The Republican Party is practically alabaster. Somewhere around 90% of the party is white. It's Mm -hmm. about 6% Latinx, which is still not very Latinx, but it's only about 1% black. And if you just look at black people, right, in presidential elections, Republicans routinely struggle just to get to 10% of the overall black vote. Hmm. And of course, black voters aren't just Democrats. In a lot of ways, they're the backbone of the Democratic Party. Since 1992, there hasn't been a candidate who has won the Democratic Party's primary who has also not won the majority of the black vote. That's according to NBC.
1: But, Gene, there are these high-profile black Republicans who get a lot of shine in the media. Mm -hmm. Let's name-check a few. Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. Herman Cain. Condoleezza Rice. Rice. uh, Ben Carson. Kanye West for a hot minute. (laughs) <laughs> this
0: is not the last time you heard about Kanye in this episode
1: Uh-huh But folks like Kara, rank and file Republicans They're unicorns
0: And that is what we're getting into this episode, Shereen Who are these outliers who are choosing to sit alone At the black table, in the corner of the super white Big Ten Why are they there? And what can they teach us about the ways we all cast our ballots? Cara says she has no illusions about the Republican Party's racism. But she told me that Black Democrats are kind of hoping upon hope that white people will stop white people
2: Republicans have done some overtly, on the record, blatant racist things in the past. Certainly that has happened. Democrats have a long-standing history of doing covertly racist things and trying to spin their racism into but i have a black friend so i couldn't be racist and i just chose to have my racism overt
1: mm-hmm. and that you know covert racism is something we talk about on the podcast all the time yep. but i do take issue with Kara saying republicans have done blatantly racist things in the past right no that's happening right now
0: you got voter suppression and the citizenship question and Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers and invaders. What am I missing? Shithole gate. And you have everything that happened at Charlottesville.
2: They nominate Donald Trump and it becomes, we are standing behind white supremacy. And that was a turning point for me. Okay,
1: there we go.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Cara said that she just could not bang with the Republican Party like that anymore. Not after President Trump. So she stopped IDing with the party. Hmm. She now calls herself Mm -hmm. an independent And President Trump is something that a lot of black Republicans have to deal with. I mean, there are not a lot of black Republicans, but you know what I mean. One (laughs) percent. The president has fundamentally changed the social arithmetic for them in more ways than one. Black Republicans, they're minorities among Republicans. Shereen, that's Corey D. Fields. And they're minorities among black people. Corey is an associate professor of sociology at Georgetown. He's also the author of... Black Elephants in the Room, The Unexpected Politics of African American Republicans.
1: I really like that title. I did
0: too. I really want to name this episode.
1: Black (laughs) Elephants.
0: Black Elephants in the Room. Anyway, Black Elephants in the Room, that book is essentially an ethnographic study of black Republican activists. Corey interviewed a bunch of them in several states over a couple of years. You can go into any state and talk to 20 people and you've talked to the entire (laughs) black Republican activist community. What he was trying to figure out is how do they juggle their Black racial identity with their Republican partisan identity? You know, something the people I talked to were always kind of stressing was this sort of, we walk among you energy <laughs> among Black Republicans, right? Like, we look just like you. You would know it. Until you're like, what? I asked them, like, were there any factors that predicted Black affiliation with the GOP? Like... Hmm, Was it age related? Like, was it geographical? Was it ideology? Was it income? And he crunched a bunch of numbers and he found that none of those things mattered, at least not all that much. What did matter, he says, was, you know, these attitudes around blackness, like relationship to blackness, like the meaning and centrality of blackness that sort of predicted which blacks would identify as Republicans and which ones would identify as Democrats.
1: Hmm. What does he mean? What what kinds of attitudes about blackness?
0: So what he was saying was if people said that blackness was central to their identity and being in community with black folks was important to them, then they were way, way, way less likely to identify as a Republican. Uh, How much blackness do you want to let into your life as a black person? <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but that wasn't true for everybody. Like the title of his book said, it's the unexpected politics of African-American Republicans. And Corey actually did find a lot of Black Republicans who said that being Black was integral to their politics, who talked about their politics the way Cara mm. talks about hers. He called those people race-conscious Black Republicans. So if you think about Cara, she takes it as a given that racism is a real thing. It's a fact of American life. Like Cara, they specifically care about the condition of Black families and Black businesses and Black institutions, and their conservatism is informed and shaped by that. And then there's this other camp and that's the group that we tend to hear from far more frequently. He calls that group race-blind black Republicans. What's interesting is, you know, the race-blind black Republicans, they feel less marginalized because they do have like, relationships with white people. It's like mm-hmm. they, they don't feel alone at CPAC. CPAC is the Conservative Political Action Conference.
1: Thank you. I didn't know what that is. Was Sorry.
0: He says race-blind black Republicans would say, oh, I like school vouchers because the market is the best way to distribute resources versus the race-conscious dude who's saying, I like school vouchers because black parents should be making decisions about what happened to black kids, mm-hmm. not white administrators. Race-conscious black Republicans sort of saw their goal is changing white Republicans, right? Their goal was to sort of change the Republican establishment to make it less racist, whereas race blind black Republicans saw their goal as changing black people. And he says the reasons that we hear from these race blind black Republicans so much more often than we do the race conscious folks has to do with the makeup of the larger Republican Party. Our ideas about what a black Republican looks like are fundamentally shaped by the desires and demands of white Republicans. Like, specifically, like, gatekeepers within the party, like the people who sort of control resources. The whole thing is organized not for black people so much as for white audiences. And Corey's like, all right, think about this like a literal party, not just a political party, but like a turn-up function situation. Like, oh, yeah. What party isn't improved by black people? More black people in, <laughs> right? But the thing is, they sort of construct the entryway so narrowly that only a certain kind of person can squeeze through. And so what happens is, you know, if you're a black Republican who, you know, wants to sort of foreground race and black uplift in your politics, you'll get carted at the door. One way to think about this is given the option to choose between A black Republican who says race doesn't matter. Just work hard. And a black Republican who says black power through conservative principles. Fox News tends to call that first person.
1: But now the bouncers at Taco Tuesdays are (laughs) all wearing MAGA hats.
4: My president never says anything that's stupid. And see, that's what's wrong with you left people. Mm -hmm. You all
1: always want
4: to be so politically correct. Well, he's not politically correct. He's honest. And we love him for his honesty.
1: If you do not recognize those voices, that is Diamond and Silk. Hmm. And for those of you who are unaware of Diamond and Silk, how how would we describe them, That's a great question. Political commentators. Sort of. YouTubers. Yeah, that's, that's accurate, I guess. I think people should just Google them to get the full effect.
0: I think that's that's right. So I asked Corey what he made of them. Honestly, the first, I don't know, I would say the first six to eight months that they were on the scene, I was convinced it was like, uh performance art thing that was going to like circle back around <laughs> and it was going to be like, I was like, oh my God, my phone is going to be lightened up once mm. they come out. Um But then it turned out that, they, I mean, they're, they seem pretty serious, I guess. <laughs> I mean, we're committed to whatever it is they're doing. And he said Diamond and Silk are like the perfect examples of the way that whiteness shapes the black Republicans that we see. You think about, you know, who is the person Diamond and Silk is for, right? The audience for black Republicans is often sort of concerned white Republicans, right? Like white Republicans who might be like, hmm... I maybe think some stuff that some people might think of as kind of racist. And I don't want to think of myself as a racist person. So, like, I don't know. Maybe this isn't the party for me. And then you have someone saying the exact same stuff who's black. And it's like, yes, it's not racist. Pull the lever.
1: Gene. if you see Diamond and Silk on Fox, one of the news anchors will always be like, yeah. And for those of you who think... Uh, The Trump administration is a racist, white supremacist administration. What do you think, Diamond and Silk? And they'll always be like, that is not true. You know, the KKK was started by the Democrats and things like that.
0: Yeah, that's like literally the role they play.
3: Well, think about the implication that if you support the GOP, you must be marching in Charlottesville with tiki torches and you're a white supremacist. I mean,
0: where does that argument come from?
4: The par- Listen, the GOP is the party of freedom, OK? Freedom, free That's to right. free to think for yourself, yes. free to do whatever you want to do. The Democratic Party, what they want to do is they want to control you. They want to have you in a slavery mindset. But and
0: Corey was saying that there were always American- black Republicans who sort of served this purpose in more like subliminal ways. They were buttoned up folks like Condé Rice and Colin Powell and commentators like Thomas Sowell, right? They didn't go about it the same way. The Diamond and Silk do. Corey says Diamond and Silk are brasher and louder and always doing, like, the absolute most because they reflect this Trumpification of the GOP. Corey said he went to a bunch of events that were thrown by some race-blind Black Republican groups. You know, and those events were ostensibly about outreach to Black folks about diversifying the party. But some of those organizations, the ones with, like, institutional backing from the party, they felt like astroturfing, like there'd be Black people on stage... But Mm -hmm. only white folks in the audience in some, like, well-appointed venue. And on their websites, if you looked at the boards of those organizations, the boards would be all white.
1: Surprise. Yeah. Wondering what the race-conscious black Republican activist events look like.
0: So he said their events they were a little jankier. Those are Corey's words.
1: Oh, um, is he from the Bay? Oh, He is isn't He's in janky.
0: He is. He used to be at Stanford. Oh no, he's in. There. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He probably got that from the Bay. <laughs> um, he said their events were done on tighter budgets. They were like in less you know less swank places. He said they were a lot of fun. Actually, the music was really good. They felt like a <laughs> black family reunion, but there was definitely a cash bar. <laughs> at those events, he said it was black folks reaching out to other black folks or trying to anyway. He said the differences in these events and these organizations show the kinds of choices that black Republicans have to make to get attention and to get resources from the wider, whiter party. Part of the story of being a black Republican is also the story of managing blackness in white (laughs) contexts. Like and that's actually A dynamic a lot of black people (laughs) like have to deal with. And like, I don't want to say it's like a placeholder for the story of like, you know, black people in integrated spaces. But it's also not completely different from it. Right. Mm -hmm. That like you have to manage blackness in a way that sits comfortably with what white gatekeepers want. Mm.
1: Oh, that sounds very familiar. Doesn't it, though? We have to deal with this all the time. Mm. at a place that will remain nameless that has three letters. Mm. Anyway, this is not about us. It's not. But I get it. I I get what he's saying. Mm. Anyway, back to the lecture at hand. I'm assuming there's (laughs) a lot of tension between these race-blind and race-conscious black Republican activists. Oh my gosh, Reigns.
0: So Corey said that after hanging out with them, it became very clear that they do not like each other. I was completely thrown by the intensity of the fights, the insults and language. I've never heard more people get called an Uncle Tom than when I, like, studied Black Republic, like, talking to Black Republicans. Like, about they, other Black About other Black Republicans. Like, it was just like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, look, because they're fighting over scraps of attention and resources and money, they often fight with each other more viciously than they fight with democrats the race blind folks, to the race conscious folks they're saying like how do you can come up in somebody's house and talk shit about them
1: (laughs) i love Corey. (laughs) he was
0: wonderful i i really wanted like i want to hang out with you he was super smart he said that for the race conscious black republicans they really felt this sense of rejection they were angry at these race blind folks who they thought were like sellouts But to all the Black folks in their lives who were not in the Republican Party, there was no real distinction to be made. All Black Republicans, race-conscious, race-blonde, whatever, whatever, they're all sellouts. Even among the sort of race-conscious Black Republicans I talked to, like, there was definitely, you know, there was a deep sort of sadness about it, right? And like, the sort of forlornness of, like, I'm being misunderstood. And this tension that race-conscious Black Republicans feel between their Blackness and the Republican Party identification, it only seems to be getting more fraught. I mean, just over the summer, a Quinnipiac poll found that 80% of black respondents felt President Trump was a racist, which I guess is not surprising to anybody.
1: Actually, I'm surprised that it's only 80%. They I know, actually. Going.
0: Yeah, was, I thought it'd be higher. So the president represents something fundamentally different for black Republicans. And Corey said a lot of the people who he talked to when he was writing his book have just reached out to him and said Trump is a bright red line that they just— could not cross talking to people i initially interviewed for the project now like when they're sort of getting in touch with me now they're definitely sort of saying like oh i can't identify as republican anymore especially those who were like a race conscious uh brand of black republicans they're definitely sort of sitting out uh the trump administration right in terms of identification just like cara
1: right Well, we're going to let the audience chew on all of that for a little bit. But when we come back...
0: I just love Trump. That's my boy. What can Kanye teach us about how all of us vote?
5: Stay with
1: us. These days,
5: news comes at you fast. But the truth... Getting there takes time.
4: There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your
5: podcasts.
4: Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you.
5: I could smell the smoke.
0: I could smell the dust.
4: Voices that resonate. <laughs> stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The embedded podcast is NPR's
5: home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: When the economic news gets to be a bit much,
1: listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day, all in 10 minutes or less.
0: The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic
1: sidekick. From NPR.
0: Malcolm Gladwell is one of the most well-known thinkers in the world. But he says a lot of his fans don't know that he's black.
4: White people don't know, black people
0: always know. How do you feel about that? I find it hilarious. (laughs) Malcolm Gladwell on race, pop culture, and a whole lot more next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR
1: diamond silk code switch
0: (laughs) so the republican party has been trying to reach out to black folks for a long time time and time again their efforts basically fail so let's talk about why that is
1: well there is the obvious gene Mm -hmm. the gop is incredibly white
0: (laughs) how white is it shereen
1: it is so white that if it was a bride at a wedding it wouldn't have to wear a dress (laughs) It's so white, it claps on the ones and threes. A it's 90% white, James. So and weird. now it's the party of President Donald Trump.
0: Which, as we just said, is not helping. And so for a long time, you were not automatically considered a sellout if you were a black person and a Republican. But remember how Cara's dad described Ronald Reagan?
2: I mean, there's like Lucifer and then there's like Ronald <laughs> Reagan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's around the time of Reagan that the GOP basically becomes irradiated for most Black folks. Here's Corey Fields again. I mean, I think sort of like the Reagan era becomes like being Black and Republican is not just like an alternative choice that people can make. It becomes disreputable choice that a person can make. Like it was sort of perceived as, no, this is a campaign and this is a party that's like actually organized actively around anti-blackness.
1: Hmm, so it was Reagan. It wasn't Nixon and the Southern strategy?
0: Uh, that's the beginning of the sort of thing, but it, he says it crystallizes like huh. in the 80s, and the late 70s and 80s.
1: So if being a black Republican becomes a very disreputable choice during the Reagan era, then being black and identifying as a Democrat becomes the expected choice?
0: Yeah, which brings us to your boy, Kanye.
1: My boy? Come on. Just as a musician... African-American, you know,
3: everyone around me tried to pick my candidate for
0: me and then told me every time I said I like Trump that I couldn't say it out loud or my career would be over, I'd get kicked out the black community because blacks, are we're supposed to have a monolithic thought. So I didn't have the, the confidence to take on the world and the possible backlash. And it took me a year and a half to have the confidence to stand up and put on the hat.
1: That does no, not even know. sound like Kanye. He is code switching so hard yeah, right there. it's
0: very, very interesting on a bunch of levels.
1: What's he has, like, a, got a very tight red tie on. <laughs> anyway. A cardigan. And maybe. a MAGA hat. And a
0: MAGA hat. Leather jacket.
1: For those of you who don't remember, that was Kanye. <laughs> Your boy. Um, and it was last year when, for several months... He was running around with a MAGA hat on, giving interviews to people about how he was a free thinker because he was supporting President Trump. He was saying all kinds of interesting things. You hear about slavery for 400 years? For 400 years? That sounds like a choice. (sighs) What? Every time I hear that, (laughs) it's still like, what (sighs) are you saying? And he was often doing this stuff with his new friend, Candace Owens, the black conservative commentator. 2016, I escaped the Democrat plantation of thoughts. And I want to provide the rest of you guys at home watching with a guide how
4: to. Ready? The first thing you're going to need is Internet access. The second thing you're going to need is your free.
0: This is the same Candace Owens who was the architect of Blexit.
4: Yes, um, the black exit from the Democrat Party, because it's time that we stop allowing them to use us for votes and deliver none of the promises um, that they ensure every election cycle.
0: Candace Owens was going to be like this black Moses in a cardigan and pearls, leading an exodus of Negroes out of the Democratic Party and into the loving embrace of the GOP. We reached out to her, by the way. She did not get back to us.
1: Hmm, too bad.
0: But she pointed to Yay as an example. Here's this cool rap guy who's Blexiting. Yeezy is Blexit, and so can you.
1: Did she say this is cool rap guy?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just um that's how I imagine her saying it. Right. And have...
1: also Blexit. I
0: don't know.
1: That word is weird.
0: It could have used some workshopping. I mean, yeah, it wasn't it's not the prettiest word. Anyway, surprise, surprise, none of that whole episode changed the way that black folks thought about the GOP. It definitely though changed the way that black folks thought about Kanye. Indeed. Yes. Because, I mean, he got dragged by everyone. Everybody's like, this fool done lost his mind. And to really underline his defiance, Kanye being Kanye, tweeted out screenshots of a text conversation he was having with John Legend, in which John Legend was trying to check Kanye for associating with President Trump. And this whole, like, wave of opprobrium towards Kanye was a perfect real-world example of how some political scientists say Black partisan behavior is reinforced.
4: I am Cheryl Laird. I'm an assistant professor of government and legal studies at Bowdoin College.
0: Cheryl and a colleague named Ishmael K. White have a forthcoming book. It's called Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior. And it's about this thing we're talking about, this powerful norm around Black people voting for Democrats. It spans generations. It spans geography. As we've been talking about, it spans ideology. And she pointed to an episode of Blackish to underline this point. Uh, Bo, we have a problem. Junior is a Republican.
1: Well, that's okay. What? So he wants to shop a Banana Republic. They have a crazy generous return policy. No, no, no.
2: You're not getting it, all right? He's a Republican.
1: A notary public that's a noble profession, will save us tons of time.
3: No! Ronald Reagan, Ann Coulter, Fox News, Tea Party,
4: no! Republican! Republican? Yes! No!
1: Yes! No! Yes! No! Yes! No. yes. We don't do that, Dre! We are compassionate liberals who believe in tolerance, acceptance, open... Yeah, 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 yeah,
2: whatever, but we're black, all right? That's all that matters. We're black.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That episode was called Blackish Elephants in the Room, by the way. I'm so mad that we are not the first people to make that pun joke. Is it a pun? Yes, sir. Joke, joke jokey pun. pun?
0: Everybody made it before us. Corey should be demanding royalties. (laughs) Anyway, Cheryl said that for a long time, People just thought that the reason black folks vote together as a block came from this notion, first coined in the 1990s.
1: Whoop, whoop.
0: That notion is called linked fate. And basically, it's like
4: The shared historical experiences of African Americans have made it so that they believe that what happens to the group has an influence on their own individual life. So basically, what is good for the group should be good for me. This idea that I believe what happens to the group has an influence on my own individual life. We're in this together.
0: We're in this together. And the research that Cheryl and others have done says that's not quite the whole story when it comes to black voting. So, when they measured and tested this idea, like a professed sense of link fate wasn't enough to explain why black people almost never break rank in the voting booth, even when they might have powerful personal motivators and incentives to do so. So, Cheryl and Ishmael White conducted a study about incentives and Black partisanship. The researchers went to an HBCU, which they did not name, and they told a bunch of students back during the 2012 campaign, hey, we will give you $100 for you to donate to either Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, the Republican nominee. And they told the students, you can divvy up that $100 however you want.
1: An actual Benjamin
0: Yeah, like, well, it wasn't real money because that would be against the law. And they made it clear that they weren't breaking any (laughs) financial laws. But they told the students that the money was real because they wanted them to buy it. So they did this with one group.
1: And they gave all the money to President Obama.
0: Yeah, they gave most of their money to Obama.
1: Yeah, that's not that surprising.
0: Yeah, that, that checks out. Then they had a second group. And they were basically like, if you give money to Mitt Romney, you get to keep some of that money. And the more money you give to Mitt Romney, the more money you get to keep.
1: Ah, an incentive an incentive for college students who probably don't have a lot of money mm-hmm. um, because they're college students. Yep. So give money to Romney, you get money.
0: That's book money, that's meal plan money, you know what I mean? That's movie money, might want a date. And so, unsurprisingly, a lot more people gave a lot more money to Mitt Romney. Like even the people who expressed high levels of linked fate feelings broke rank when there was money on the table. So then they had a third group Again, $100, divvy it up however you want. Obama-Romney will give you a big kickback if you donate to Romney. Mm -hmm. But what they said to this group was, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to publish how you donated in the very popular student newspaper at this historically black college.
1: Oh, all that money went to President Obama. (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) exactly. That third group basically behaved like the first group who had no incentive whatsoever. The students in the last group were concerned that the newspaper was going to blow up their spots, and they just did not want to be there for that dragon. Makes sense. Yes. And Cheryl said you can find this effect in even narrower situations. a Kali did a study and found that the way black people describe their political affiliation changed depending on whether a black person was asking them that question.
1: Huh. So if a black person is doing the asking and the question is, are you a Democrat or Republican? Black people are more likely to say they're Democrats, even if they are Republicans.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Depending on the race of the interviewer, they answer that question differently. They didn't want to deviate from this implied social expectation. And Cheryl was saying that, you know, contrary to what Kanye is saying, this is not an issue of Black folks not thinking for themselves. It's about practicality. It's about maximizing power.
4: Right. And I want to be clear, right? Our theory is not saying that African-Americans are behaving blindly, In fact, it is an incredibly strategic manner in which they are behaving in politics, more strategic than most groups you see in politics engage, where there is a clear understanding of how to leverage the group's numbers.
0: She said that Black people are really practiced in following and enforcing these norms because defection was literally a matter of life or death. She pointed to the story told by Frederick Douglass.
4: There were instances in which people were plotting to potentially, you know, escape uh, a plantation. Um, that if there was one enslaved individual who was deciding to inform the master of what was going on, they would make sure that that person is brought to a meet. Like they brought them to a meeting, and basically was like, we will basically take you down.
0: Hmm, that sounds like a choice too, Kanye. Anyway, uh, she stressed that voting for everyone, not just black folks. It's fundamentally social behavior and influenced by the people around us. It's like whether we even vote in the first place is about whether the folks around us are voters. And the way we all cast ballots or think about specific issues and our party identification is influenced by like where we live and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. we feel the rewards, the social rewards of being in line with the group and we feel the sanctions when we aren't.
1: Yeah, this is why politics to me, is so much like sports and why I don't like politics and I don't really like sports. <sighs> yeah, you heard it. You know, uh-huh. you're in line with your team no matter what, no matter if they move from Oakland to Las Vegas, you know, or if they move from Oakland to San Francisco, you're <gasps> still you're still down. You got to be down with your team, whatever. Right. And,
0: <laughs> you know, Cheryl said, you can find white evangelical churches where people don't want to break rank and they feel the same kind of pressures and they feel the same sort of social cachet that comes along with going along. And this is, like, important. We tend to think of people's party identification as the result, like a consequence of the political beliefs they already hold. But it's often the opposite. People tend to belong to a party because the folks around them belong to that party, and their beliefs follow suit with the party's positions.
1: Human beings are social animals.
0: Yeah. But she says when it comes to Black folks, we can enforce those norms much more effectively.
1: Because they are in a social space
4: where they're heavily homogenous, Right. So segregation plays a big thing here from the institution of slavery to actual Jim Crow segregation, to continued segregation in residential housing. Right. Those things create a homogeneous space in which that understanding of where the group is politically becomes very key.
1: All signs point back to...
0: Hashtag housing segregation in everything. Essentially... Black folks vote like black Democrats because they worship with and get their hair done by and live next door to and are related to black Democrats.
4: You could potentially be putting yourself in very detrimental circumstances if you lose your social connections because your social circle is predominantly
1: African-American. Which brings us back to Mr. Kanye West. Mm -hmm. Not that he needs any more attention, Gene. But anyway, (laughs) his black friends told him, do not do it leave President Trump alone. That's Mm -hmm. what John Legend was doing in that text conversation. And, you know, Kanye got called out by so many people that he was in real danger of losing that one thing that all rappers need, Gene. What's that? Which is credibility.
0: Yes. (laughs) And you remember, like, a few months later, Kanye was putting some distance between himself and Blexit and Candace Owens. They got into some weird beef about T-shirts and logos or something, I don't remember. Anyway, Cheryl says that that's how it works, right? Kanye deviated from the expected norm. Kanye got called out by everybody and dragged by everybody. People came to collect him. Kanye fell back in line. Ish. Ish. Yeah, ish.
1: And Kanye is exactly the kind of person who can deviate from the norm, right? Mm -hmm. He's... A very rich rapper mm-hmm. with a wife who is not black, in-laws who are not black. He lives in a city called Calabasas. If you've ever seen the Kardashians, you know this city. It's out here in LA County. It is 1% black, Wow, just like the Republican Party. Uh, <laughs> and the only black people in Calabasas, I would bet, are dating or married to the Kardashians or the Jenners in some way. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, not a lot of black folks Put direct and consistent face to face pressure on Mr. Kanye West. Yeah, I guess it's
0: like Kanye, Travis Scott, Black China.
1: All the other Black people in Calabasas are going to be so mad right now. <laughs> We're going to get so many letters, like five. You...
0: <laughs> but it sort of underlines one of the dilemmas of honest Republican outreach to Black voters. Like, you would need to find Black folks who have enough buy-in with other Black folks and enough social connection to other Black folks who can make that sell.
1: We've gotten some of the sociology around Black republicanism, and we just looked at some of the political science that explains why Black Republicans remain such outliers. Mm -hmm. But what's it like to be one of that tiny, tiny number and hold elected office? It's really quite interesting to be
5: a Republican today and still trying to do everything I can to preserve the principles and the platform of the party.
0: That's Mia Love. In 2014, she became the first black woman ever elected to Congress as a Republican. She represented a district in Utah, and I asked her why she thought the GOP did so poorly with black voters.
5: Well, you know, at the risk of criticizing a party that I love, I think that the party doesn't reach out to um, minority voters as much as they should. I I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's, hey, they don't want me. This is one of the things that I have felt so strongly about. You've got to go to places that you may not think that they like you or want you, but at least show them that you care. You kind of feel like the policies are good. And the policies, I mean, they're saying the right things, but you never feel like they actually take you home. You kind of get the sense that, you know, as you go into your friend's home and their smiles and they're, but you never know what they're actually saying or you never know if they're, you're actually really accepted
1: by them. Jean, I know a little something about Mia.
5: Mm-hmm, what do you know? I know she's
1: Haitian American. Mm-hmm. I know she's the child of immigrants, and I cannot imagine her feeling accepted in the Republican Party, especially these days. Uh,
0: oh, hold off on that part. <laughs>
1: that's okay. coming up.
0: That will be relevant in a second. Uh, remember how Cara said growing up that her father thought that Ronald Reagan was basically the devil?
1: Lucifer, I believe, was yes, the term. Yes, that's what she
0: said. Lucifer. Yeah. Well, Mia says when her father and her mother came to the U.S. fleeing the Duvalier regime, They saw Reagan as a hero.
5: My dad's first vote was for Ronald Reagan. It was incredibly simple for him. He's like, I came from Haiti, where government was everything. So to me, the policies were less government, better for me. Less government, more people. That's that's where I'm going for. And so the Republican ideals and the platform was something that resonated with him. My parents were incredibly religious. I went through Sunday school. I was I had my holy communion, <laughs> you know. So it those are the things that you that you grew up with, um, valuing the sanctity of life. Um, so there were several things that were already ingrained in me. But then it started, the details started to come a little bit more clear um, as as I got involved in politics in terms of identifying.
0: Mia grew up Catholic, like me and you.
5: Like us,
1: yep. yes. Uh,
0: in college, she was a theater kid. She was around a lot of queer folks a lot. And she says that her political identification just never came up with her theater friends. And then in her early 20s, when she was working as a flight attendant and still dreaming of a Broadway career in New York, like you.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true.
0: Mia converted to Mormonism. And not long after that, she decided, yo, like, I'm going to move to Utah to get closer to the Mormon culture. She met a nice young Mormon missionary boy, uh, a white guy, mm. and they got married once they were in Utah.
1: You know, I've always been curious about how she ended up in Utah, and I never looked that up. Yeah. So thank you
0: oh, yeah. for that.
1: Um, but how did she get into politics?
0: So it was in Saratoga Springs where she started getting involved in local issues. In 2004, she was elected to the city council. In 2010, when she was 34, she was elected the city's mayor. And in Utah and among the National Republican Party more broadly, she was starting to be discussed as this young Republican star on the rise. In 2012, with all this buzz around her, she decides to run for Congress. And she says that was the first time a lot of her friends back east even knew that she was a Republican.
5: Some of my friends in college were like, what? Explain this to me. How did, what, where'd that come from? What did Utah do to you?
0: The Romney campaign even asked her to speak at the Republican convention. She said she was friends with Mitt Romney's son, Josh. He
5: uh, said, you know, I think you'd be great. Would you want to speak at the Republican national convention? And I said, sure, why not?
0: A quick aside, Shereen, um, so I was at that convention in 2012 reporting oh. out um, a story on Republican outreach to voters of color. Uh, mm-hmm. I was walking around the hallways of that arena in Tampa, um, just like, all right, let me just count how many brown people uh, are in here right now. And so, you know, there were brown people among the arena staff. Um, and then I walked up to one person and tapped them on the shoulder. I was like, oh, are are you a Republican? And they're like, no, I'm a reporter looking for other people of color. Oh,
1: you found another reporter (laughs) Exactly.
0: You got to remember, like, at that moment, the Republican Party was trying to showcase that it wasn't, you know, this lily white party, right? It was running against Barack Obama. And so the optics of that whiteness were just more obvious. So during the speeches on TV, the Puerto Rican delegation was like all the way up near the front, (laughs) as (laughs) was the Hawaiian delegation. So basically all the brown people who were in the building, they were clustered together and they were front and center.
1: And of course, you had Mia Love on stage. Yeah, basically. By herself. When I looked
5: out of the arena, there were a lot of cowboy hats. I am thrilled to add Utah's voice in support from Mitt Romney. And I remember thinking in my head, game on. You know, I've got this message to deliver. I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to speak to whoever is willing to receive it. My parents immigrated to this country with $10 in their pockets, filled with the possibilities of living the American dream.
0: The GOP was really putting their muscle behind me. I love. She was being heralded as one of the party's future stars. Mitt Romney endorsed her. His running mate Paul Ryan did. So did John Boehner, who was then the Speaker of the House.
1: It's like the Republican version of Obama's 2004 Democratic Convention breakout speech only eight years later. Uh,
0: not quite. Uh, <laughs> no? Mia Love lost that first race in 2012. But two years later, she won. <clears throat> the J-State
1: out there said that Utah would
5: never...
0: But it also kind of underlined the very different places the parties were on diversity. Shirley Chisholm, a Democrat, became the first black woman in Congress in 1969. That was 45 years before Mia Love's win. Anyway, the newly elected Mia Love didn't waste any time throwing out red meat to conservatives. At the top of her agenda was dismantling the Congressional Black Caucus from the inside.
1: Ah, and before we get into that, because I want to know more, Explanatory comma time. The Congressional Black Caucus was founded in the 1970s for black lawmakers in either the House or the Senate. Of course, it's almost entirely made up of Democrats. The Republicans in Washington, D.C. and the CBC tend not to get along. And when there are black Republicans in Congress, they often don't join the CBC. They're rejecting what they see as the identity-based politics of the Democratic Party.
0: But Mia Love was going to join the CBC, and she vowed that she was going to thwart its Democratic agenda.
1: So I'm going to assume things were not that easy for her when she got to Washington.
0: Uh, Yeah, they didn't really rock with her like that.
1: Well, the first days were kind of hard because here
5: I am, I'm listening to a whole lot of things and they're talking about my colleagues and how horrible they are and what they're doing. And I'm just back there listening. And it's funny because there were times where uh, we had to kind of set up a code of conduct. So when they really wanted to get into Democrat policies and different things like that, they would end the Congressional Caucus meeting and then I would just leave.
0: They didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, as you might imagine. But she says Mm -hmm. that over time... Things started to cool down a little bit. They at least stopped side-eyeing each other at first. Um, and then they started showing her the ropes, like how to get work done in Congress, how to work on legislation. You know how she says that the Democrats used to pause the CBC meetings and wait for her to leave? Mm-hmm. Well, they stopped doing that.
5: It got to the point where I didn't have to leave. Like, they never ended it because they trusted me. The Congressional Caucus is a nonpartisan caucus, by the way, the Congressional Black Caucus. So it's not supposed to be Democrat. I was the, happened to be the only Republican on that caucus. So I became the voice of the Congressional Black Caucus in the GOP Congress.
0: And then this legitimately weird thing started to happen. Mia Love, who was this red meat-throwing conservative woman from, you know, an all-white district in Utah, and the CBC, which is made up of Black Democrats who represent a lot of Black constituents, they developed this unlikely and genuinely warm relationship. Mia Love started working with them on issues like immigration, and she says that she started to think of the other CBC members as, like, her legitimate friends. Marsha Fudge, a representative from Cleveland, who was also the CBC's chair, she says Marsha Fudge was, like, a mentor to her. David Scott, who was a Democratic representative from Georgia, even gave money to to Mia Love's re-election campaign.
1: What? I mean, some
0: some Democrats were apparently not very happy about that. Um, (laughs) But then there was this... Weird dynamic in which members of the CBC were, like, quietly sticking up for her during her most recent campaign as she was running against one of their fellow Democrats. So (laughs) around the time that all this is happening, she says if the Republican leadership asked her to attack the CBC, she just would not do it.
1: Huh. So she went from wanting to dismantle the Congressional Black Caucus from the inside to being a productive and respected member of the CBC that is interesting. It sounds to me like a textbook case of, I don't know, if you can't beat them, join them.
0: Or, or to think about what Corey was saying, right? Like, maybe just proximity changes the way you get down people. Not just because you mm-hmm. feel like you got to fall in line, but like maybe there's a like genuine affinity, you know? I don't know. So during the midterms last year in 2018, BuzzFeed ran a story with a headline, quote, Black Democratic lawmakers want to beat every Republican except one. That one was Mia Love.
1: But that was Mm -hmm. a while back. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking throughout this entire episode about how President Trump has really thrown a wrench into the works for black Republicans. So I'm wondering how that worked out for Mia. What's her relationship with President Trump?
0: Okay, yeah. So
5: about that. I would say the relationship um, ebbed. And flowed. So it was sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was frustrating. A lot of times it was frustrating. And I think that there's some places where I'm just indifferent.
0: And then shithole gate. Let's sum up President Trump's message on immigration yesterday. And I want to warn you, according to our sources, he used a word that might offend you. He
3: asked why the United States should welcome immigrants from shithole countries.
1: We've already established that Mia Love's parents are from Haiti. Um, And Haiti is one of the countries that President Trump referred to as a shithole country. Mm -hmm. So things obviously got personal for her. We also know that the president said a bunch of other things about other groups on the campaign trail. But I guess this time things really hit home for Mia.
0: Yeah, and I actually asked her how she heard about those comments from the president.
1: I was
5: on a plane. I was on a plane and I was getting all of these texts. And again, I gave the administration the benefit of the doubt. I sent emails to everybody that I knew and crickets got nothing. And by the way, that was after I let the first phrase go, all Haitians have AIDS. And so Robin, um, who's a uh, great friend of mine, also on the CBC, she's like, did you hear that? I was like, I have no idea if that's true or not. And I let that go. And then finally, you know, we came to this point and I said, they need to respond to me at least. And so I gave them the opportunity to do that. And I was not going to let somebody who is a member of our party, get away with that. I feel like I need to hold everyone accountable. I, I believe, especially the struggles that my parents went through, that was a, it was a slap across the face. and There was no way I was going to allow that to happen.
1: I remember she called uh, President Trump's comments racist. I don't know if she was the only Republican to do that, but I remember that she did that.
0: Mm-hmm. And while all this was happening, the Republicans were gearing up for some really tough midterms. And so by the time November rolled around last year, Mia Love, along with 23 other Republicans in the House, lost their seats mia love lost her seat by just under 700 votes it was really really close but the day after the midterms when you know president trump is giving a postmortem or whatever he gloated that mia love would have won had she just been nicer to him
4: mia love she'd call me all the time to help her uh, but mia love gave me no love and she lost too bad sorry about that mia
0: Mia Love actually brought those comments up in her concession speech that night.
5: The president's behavior towards me made me wonder, what did he have to gain by saying such a thing about a a fellow Republican? It was not really about asking him to do more, was it? Or was it something else? Well, Mr. President, we'll have to chat about that. However, this gave me a clear vision of his world as it is. No real relationships just convenient transactions. That is an insufficient way to implement sincere service and policy.
0: She went on to say, quote, This election experience and these comments shines a spotlight on the problems Washington politicians have with minorities and Black Americans. It's transactional. It's not personal.
1: That's interesting to me because this very personal experience seems like It's what opened Mia Love's eyes to the tension between being a Republican and a POC. Mm
5: -hmm.
0: Just a few years before, Mia Love was being heralded as one of the future faces of the GOP. You know, a party that was nodding, at least nodding, towards the idea that it needed to court voters who were not white people. And now, two years into the Trump era, she was out of office. I asked her, like, what do you think this moment augurs for the future of your party?
5: I see... Republicans going in two different directions. One is Republicans that are going to defend the administration at all costs. Right. Doesn't matter. This is who the president is. This is the, they're going to do everything they possibly can to defend anything or justify anything. Then you get the other group that says, you know what, I cannot allow myself to be associated with this type of leadership. So I'm going to leave the party because if this is the leader of our party. I don't want to have anything to do with that.
1: So where does Mia Love stand?
5: She said, "There's
0: actually a third way,
5: and that is to stay in the party and to defend and uphold the principles that you believe in. Hold everyone accountable. I can tell you right now, I can guarantee that I've been a Republican longer than the President has. So I'm not, I'm not going to leave my party um, because there's somebody there that I, you know, don't agree with all the time. As a matter of fact, I, there's more credibility." If you sit and you say, sorry, these are not the things we believe in, but I'm going to have to call you out when you're going against that, I would do that to any of my colleagues.
0: After Mia Love lost her re-election bid last year, there were only two Black Republicans in Congress. There was Will Hurd, a representative from Texas, and Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina. Well, uh, just last month, Will Hurd announced that he would not be running for re-election, meaning the number of Black Republicans in Congress will soon be down to one.
3: Yeah. All right,
0: y'all, that's our show.
1: And remember the songs giving us life? I know we haven't done that in a while, but there are two Jay-Z tracks warring to be the song giving us life, in my opinion. I mean, I feel like we said Lucifer a number of times in this episode. We also referred to Kanye West a bunch. So I feel like... Jay Z's Lucifer from his black album produced by Kanye West really is the song that should be giving us
3: life.
0: Actually, Shireen, I was thinking a little bit more on the news than that. I was thinking of Nas's. Black Republican. Featuring.
3: Black Republican money got coming not like feel like a black taking over the government. Can't turn my back the too much Can't clean
0: and we just need to be clear here that these songs might be giving us life, but the people responsible for them uh, are not. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at NPR.org. Subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode was produced by Maria Paz Gutierrez, Jess Kung, and Sammy Yenigun. It was edited by Sammy and Steve Drummond.
0: Shout out to the rest of the Code switch fam, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kat Chow, Kumari Devarajan, Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, and L.A. Johnson.
1: Our new intern is Angela Vang.
0: And special thanks to Leah Wright-Rigore, Julian Womble, Ishmael White, and Corinne McConaughey for all their insight and expertise and help on this episode. I'm Gene Demby.
1: And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Peace, y'all. Peace. Parents have a lot of questions about screens in kids. When do I get him a cell phone?
4: What kind of cell phone does he get? It's really hard to take away an iPad. Luckily, NPR's LifeKit has answers. Check out LifeKit from NPR's new episode on Screen Time by subscribing to LifeKit All Guides. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages
2: to respond to,
4: just your suitcase— And an opportunity. The
1: opportunity
2: to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from
5: NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch. And how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits... There's some interesting pessimism about our modern
2: world, and that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions this week on npr's book of the day podcast we are discussing books centering mothers so call your mom then tune into the book of the day podcast from npr